Tracy Fuller, and this is the Arts Report, for better or worse, for December 10th, 2008. I hope you're all doing really well out there. It's been a beautiful day, and uh, hopefully there'll be many more like this to come in this month of December. I have an amazing show lined up for you today. Uh, I had a gr the great pleasure to invite a filmmaker into the studios yesterday, just like last week, actually. However, uh, this one's on a little bit of a different uh, mission, let's say, from Zach, who was in the studio last week to promote his film, um, The Office Farm Series, Part 1. Um, so uh, I also will have a theatre review from my fabulous theatre critic, Paul Riviere, and I visited... The last rehearsal for the Vancouver Symphony Youth Orchestra before their Christmas concert, which will be on stage this weekend. So I've got a little bit of sound from you from that and an interview with the directors. So it's going to be a packed show. Hold on for the ride. But first, I have some film news for you. Yesterday, as I mentioned, Eileen Yahubian uh, in, came down to the CITR studios. She just came back from speaking in Chicago. Her film debuted in Winnipeg and Toronto earlier last month, and uh, it made its world premiere at the uh, World Short Film Festival in Montreal earlier 
in the fall. Eileen Yahubian is the director of a film called Died Young, Stayed Pretty, which is a new documentary film that chronicles the re-emergence of the rock concert poster scene in North America, which started around 2001, let's say. Eileen spent four years making her film, and she traveled all across Canada and the U.S. interviewing artists, musicians, and many other people who were involved in uh, excelling and creating this rebirth of the rock poster scene. Um, The reemergence has a lot to do with the internet age that we are now living in. And just to give you a taste of what the film is about, I am going to share a little bit of the uh, film teaser with you right now. So... Stay tuned. There have been times where, like, I really want to use pink here, but these guys were just talking about how lame pink is and how much pink is being used nowadays. And so then, you know, I, I've, I've got to admit that it, that it, there's, I found a really cool octopus image, but I'll never use it because it's played out, you know, and which is, which is too bad. I, I did a poster with an octopus on it, and then. Jeff is like, wow, well, eight other people have done posters with octopuses on it, octopi. But he had no idea, but I, which was cool. I just didn't know, so, you know. The spider web is a remarkable thing, but the spider makes a spider web because that's what a spider knows how to do. Is he an artist? I don't know. I mean, I just make, make what I make because I know that's what I know how to do. So here's my interview yesterday with the director of Died Young, Stayed Pretty, Eileen Yahubian. Eileen, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. No problem. Um, can you let our listeners know a little bit about what Died Young, Stay Pretty is about? Um, it's a documentary um, on, uh, it's a movie about rock posters, and uh, it covers uh, the um rock poster world from uh, a based kind of like the idea I got from the film was uh, a designer friend of mine had sent me a link to gigposters.com which is this website that archives uh, uh, posters from 2001 onwards, which is when he uh, came up with this web portal that uh, that uh, collects kind of posters, um, indie rock posters uh, from present time. And that's what the movie covers, is this kind of here and now of the rock poster movement. And I feel like gigposters.com has created this kind of renaissance of uh, the rock poster kind of movement or a comeback type of thing. And I was kind of there in this movie to capture it. Right. So... Because it's very contemporary and now, even though these poster people existed, mm-hmm. like, and they were doing it individually, but because of this website, uh, uh, this com- community kind of, uh, this online community, like, brought all of them together. So they all kind of saw what each other was making for the venue uh, or the gig uh, in each separate town all over uh, across North America mm-hmm. on this website. So before, like, all these kind of uh, individual poster makers that were spread all across North America would be making their poster for 100 posters for a venue or a show mm-hmm. for one night. That was temporal. That would maybe, maybe if they could, if it was legal, they'd, pull, you know, staple it to the pole or mm-hmm. take it to the record shop or and uh, just to promote that show. But no one else in the community which really didn't, I don't feel like, existed prior to this gigposters.com, would see what they were doing because it would just last at this temporal type 
type of thing mm-hmm. or it'd be gone with the weather or whatever because of the street art. But now because of the site, it's kind of like archives these posters. So mm-hmm. as soon as they make it for that venue, they kind of put it on the site. And so they all kind of know what each other is making. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I call it a renaissance and I come back because of that. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I really feel like it is one. When you started making your films, how did you get in touch with each artist? Would, did they want to let you into their world and to, to show you what they'd been doing for so long? Was there any access issues? No, they all were very, uh, they seemed very open and kind. And I think, you know, they're all fans of the music mm-hmm. and uh, they work kind of behind the scenes. Some of them are musicians. They make posters for their bands so mm-hmm. that a lot of them, some, you know, did start out doing that. Like they're, they were musicians and the way that they could get people to know about their band was to make a flyer or a right. poster, right? But uh, no, they all, you know, I mean, you know, everyone says about this documentary from what I've heard or people have been telling me, like, what they like about it is that it kind of introduces them to this unknown industry. Mm-hmm. And it really is this kind of unknown industry. And I think the people in it were very welcoming to someone trying to make a film about it. You know, most of them, I mean, of course, there's some that you know, didn't want to be, you know, part of it, like any documentary, right? right? You're not, you know, but uh, they all were very kind. I I traveled alone for three years and um, uh, shooting solo, and the deal was I'd show up to their town. They put me up, and they all did, like, most of them were really kind and let me stay on the couch or sleep on the floor. Hmm. And uh, that was the deal because I couldn't, because I financed this out of my pocket money. I couldn't afford to, like, you know, stay in a hotel or really have a real kind of, production as you would if you were making a whatever a real documentary would be but uh with backing you know so that was the deal and they all were kind enough to do that uh you know so they were it was good I mean I did a lot of my research at gigposters.com and I had I had everything set and ready and I started uh locally uh, uh I started actually here in 2004 and uh I started with uh, a, a very a small crew for four days. That was my only time mm-hmm. I had a crew. And it was four days at the Seattle Bumbershoot Tough. Uh, there's a uh, flat stock uh, poster convention. Mm-hmm. Really, this gigposters.com has created that convention. And, right. uh, and it's uh, it happens in the fall. And I started my project there. And prior to going there, I had researched each person I wanted to interview. I had a shot list for each one. I had a 30-page script shooting list for my DP. Mm-hmm. So it was very researched and very well-prepared before I start a project, knowing that I was going to eventually go to their towns and film it. So. Right. So what was it like going into the homes? I mean, I, I imagine that many of these posters are made in the basements or in the garages of these people's homes? Or Yeah, I mean, they all have their spaces. Uh, it wasn't necessarily in their homes. They all had at this other places, like spaces that you see in my film that actually most of them are not in it anymore. Like like things like uh, Brian Champanella. I don't know if you know him from Lightning Bolt, the band mm. Lightning Bolt. Mm. He's a Providence guy and he was like the space that you see in my film, which is like this amazing warehouse space that he lived in with a whole bunch of other people. He's been evicted from there. It's been like 11 times he's been evicted from these spaces and he kind of talks about that in my film about how like, you know, like... Um, it's kind of like the only place that he can do what he can do mm-hmm. and because he's in a band and he makes these posters or whatever. It's like the, those spaces are very important. The peripheral kind of spaces are, are very important, and they're important in my film about where these people make their posters because of, you know, finance, you know, a lot of them, you know, it's not like you make money from poster art, you know, no. but some of them are designers and they have design studios. So it it varies, right? Like who, it depended on who I was, what town I was in, who I was, who, who I was covering. Right. 
there are posters that you feature that are for concerts yeah, for the Rob White Jones. Stripes or the Shins or much larger names. How did these big artists who sort of exist in this outside world and ephemeral world, how did they get in touch with these individual artists who are making these specialized posters? Well, I think a lot of it, uh, I mean, I, I don't know how they hooked the deals. Like, I know, like, Rob Jones, who's in my movie, uh, does a, uh, most of the white stripe posters. Mm-hmm. They're the red and, he has this kind of red and black uh uh, a stamp kind of on those uh, white stripe posters that he does for them. And he's the guy. He's the white stripes guy. And uh, he started out uh, doing uh, posters for this band called Pink Swords, uh, who no one really knows about. But the, he made these really great posters that I include in my film. Mm-hmm. And uh, he made them. And the poster was kind of like that talk of, like, is the is the a poster better than the band type of thing and he would get people to the show but the band is still unknown you know mm-hmm. but he kind of started out doing that and that idea of like wanting to promote his friend's band or whatever but then I guess like he, you know what happens with a lot of them it's not necessarily sometimes that the band would hire them but although with Rob Jones he does do the White Stripes uh, stuff but uh, but it would be the venue Uh, in the town Mm -hmm. uh, that would uh, call up the poster artist or sometimes the poster artist would kind of try to get the gig of the show that's coming into town. Right. a lot of them don't have kind of exclusivity towards the bands, depending on the band. Like, I know Print Mafia, who's in my film, did the tool, Marilyn Manson poster tour series. Mm-hmm. So some of them do tours. But that's because they've been doing posters for a while in those towns, like Rob Jones in Austin and Print Mafia in Nashville and Kentucky. And um, Ames Brothers, who's also in my film, mm-hmm. uh, Barry Amit is, is uh, brothers with one of the Pearl Jam uh, um, members, Musicians. musician. Mm-hmm. So, like he, he, they had an exclusive deal where they just made Pearl Jam posters. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of rare in that poster community. Mm-hmm. It's kind of this free for all type of thing, which is it's kind of what makes it cool, right? Because when the band travels from town to town, they get like a different poster. Mm-hmm. Uh, or a different poster maker, and that's what kind of makes that cool. Where some of them, some of them do want to like be exclusive about it, but mm. I find that's what's interesting about the posters. Absolutely, and I guess in some ways, probably some of those posters travel to the new towns, even if there is a new poster maker in the new place. Since this online community was created, how have seeing each other's posters changed the way that these individual artists are making their art? That's a really good. Uh, that's a really good um, uh, question because. I mean, in the beginning, I don't know, in the trailer, uh, which, uh, which is uh, kind of the opening of my film, uh, uh, Jeff Kleinsmith, who's uh, uh, the art director for Sub Pop Records, used to mm-hmm. do the early black and white flyers uh, um, in Seattle in the 90s and did a lot of, uh, and he's also patent pending. Um, uh, he, like, talks about, he talks about, like, uh, what Geek Poster says, kind of uh, sometimes what it can it can be, like, as far as them seeing what each other is making, where before they'd be in their little bubbles making this thing. But now, like, if you want to use pink, you know, and uh, octopus imagery or whatever, and he had this idea for this great octopus pink image for a poster for, I don't know, whatever, some band, you know, uh, he sees it on Geek Poster and he's like, oh, that's been done. Like, I can't make that mm-hmm. octopus poster anymore because it's been done. Where before without seeing that kind of reference online, he, he'd make that octopus pink poster without knowing what anyone else is doing. Hmm. So sometimes it is a deterrent, he feels like. And I think some of them do feel that way. It's kind of like they're now like, you know, like once they make it before, maybe no one saw it or a hundred people saw it for that show. But now they're all being kind of judged on the site with each other. So there's this kind of interesting dialogue that happens, uh, yeah. has changed. And before, maybe there was individuality, maybe more so because of, of, of the regionalism. There was a kind of a sense of regionalism 
regionalism, where maybe because of this online thing, the regionalism is being broken down. Mm. And uh, so it's, it's a lot of interesting dialogues are happening in the film about all of this stuff. Mm-hmm. And uh, and uh, so it's a good question. It certainly um, it occurs to me that it's a different kind of performance almost because you're you're you've got that audience out there in that town that maybe those 100 people who would have always seen your poster had you made it. But now you've got this really well well studied and well versed group as well online that's looking at it and saying oh that's like this 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 and this whereas mm-hmm. before those images may have never crossed paths or never yeah. understood that they would be influencing each other yeah absolutely and that whole copyright thing and stealing from one another mm-hmm. and the whole cut and paste thing or them being kind of appropriators of a time like a golden era of america and taking things from like magazines and which really attracted me to the imagery initially and chantry our chantry talks about that he's kind of the king of the cut and paste and mm-hmm. and and uh, in that world, and uh, he's, uh, his posters are all about that. And uh, so there's different schools of poster making, too. And as far as, like, me making the documentary, I cut it like that. Mm-hmm. I cut it without those boundaries. Right. I, 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 I cut it like I was making a poster, and I was kind of doing this rock kind of film. And uh, that's what the movie has a lot of divergences. It kind of is really the structure of it is, is like that. It kind of breaks those boundaries. Mm-hmm. You know, initially, initially I thought I would do a town for town as a cut, but mm-hmm. I saw that uh, Jim Jarmusch film, Coffee and Cigarettes or whatever, yeah. and I was like, oh my God, I'm like uh-huh. going to be stuck in this, this like, you know, um, vignette thing that like, I can't like, it'll be, I thought would be boring. Mm-hmm. And so I completely restructured the film. So knowing so you lately restructured the film, I was going to, my question was going to be, did you know when you came to an end? Like, you were traveling for three years, collecting footage from all over the U.S. and Canada. Was there a point at which you were suddenly like, okay, I have enough? I'm sure you had reels and reels and reels of footage to look at when you were putting it all together, but was there a point when you when you felt like the the journey that you were on as a filmmaker came to an end? Yeah. Um, I mean, the footage I ended up getting after three years was like 250 hours of footage or something crazy. Oh I went to like 20 different states, like Austin, Texas, uh, which is which is in Austin, in Texas. <laughs> but um, and yeah, being an American now, my regional, my my geography is uh, getting screwy. Um, but. Um, uh, Minneapolis, uh, Seattle, uh, Providence, um, Calgary, uh, Montreal, and all over the place. And and uh, I knew I was going to rap with Brian Chippendale in Providence uh, because Brian Chippendale kind of sits outside of that periphery of gigposters.com. He's not part of that community in that way because he's known for his band, The Lightning Bolt, and he has a specific kind of Providence, his specific kind of look that has influenced a lot of the Montreal people. Mm-hmm. And uh, and. I knew I did Montreal and and Providence at the end, and I knew I was going to rap with Brian, but I didn't know what I would get, and and I ended up getting my movie. I feel like, uh, I feel like, I mean, of course, you know, there's a few people in my film, like a lot of them per- contribute to the film, but I feel like rapping with Brian was a gift, and and I, and it was just a great shoot, and uh, I knew I had the film. Once I I rapped, even though I knew I was rapping with him, he kind of rapped the rap type of thing, mm-hmm. and. Um, and where uh, uh, he was giving me everything I've been ser- I was searching for, as far as all these questions I was asking all the other poster makers in the three years, kind of like it was kind of like I didn't even have to ask him; he was answering them for me. Mm. And uh, and uh, so he he's a he he plays a huge role in the film, and um, and you know you, we have to come and see it uh, 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 Wednesday and uh, or, or Thursday night because really like uh, Brian's uh, uh, you know I don't want to give it away, but mm. really like. 
you know, the ending's pretty good. It's pretty sweet. <laughs> and there was like the gifts of like documentary filmmaking happened throughout the whole time, right, of making the film. That's great. Is there well? It obviously sounds like he was the pièce de résistance. Well, him and, then, and uh, right. him and Chantry, because they both come from different schools. Like Chantry's the older guy who's mm-hmm. influenced a lot of these people, from the like the cut and paste type of black and white flyering of the Seattle stuff, the grunge kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And uh, two, like Brian Chippendale, who does the squiggly like drawings of like there's a certain scene and 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 uh, in post So they're both kind of like you know, kind of come in and out of the film. But there's a lot of people in my film, like Bryce McLeod from Tennessee does Letterpress. Uh, uh, Ron Liberty, who does this amazing, like, uh, amazing cut-and-paste style stuff in North uh, North Carolina. Print Mafia does amazing cut-and-paste stuff in uh, Kentucky. Mm-hmm. And uh, Rob Jones in Austin. Mm-hmm. And uh, Chicago, the Chicago guys are great, great, like, stuff in Chicago. So there's a whole bunch of people, kind of the, the, kind of the masters, I guess right. I would say, like, covered in the film. So would you say, I mean, a lot of these people might have never seen each other's work or would not know each other unless the website came about. Do you think that... No, I think they did know about each other. Oh, really? Like, some of the top players, uh, players, I call them players, uh-huh. so, you know, they did know each other, you know, okay. because they'd been doing it for so long. Like, uh, But it wasn't like they hung out or anything right. is the thing, right? There wasn't a dialogue no, the way there is no, now. No, not as much, no. Uh, would you, do you think that... Regionally there was. Okay. But not, you know, not from, like, Mike, not from like Mike King or Tyler Stout for Oregon to like, you know, Jay Ryan in Chicago. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like, well, do you think that the dialogue has overall helped the community, whether they be the big players or the small players, or hindered it? Well, in they're some all ways, players. Cause... That's a good thing about the community. Because <laughs> I mean, when you mention someone like not using pink or deciding that you know, there's already eight octopus posters out there. I'm not going to do it. Yeah, I mean, Jeff, Jeff Kleismith also says in, uh, later on uh, about that, and he says, like, you know, if Mike King puts an octopus on a on a poster, then there's, like, ten other puppies making octopus posters, mm-hmm. you know, but that's, like, that's, like, what everything's about when you make things, right? Like, right. you have influences, and you have people who've been doing it longer than you have, and so everything, you know, you kind of look for inspiration, and, and I think that that's part of making anything. Like, it's for me, like, making the film, like, I took uh I took like uh all the filmmakers I love like like uh you know I wrote a the con- I knew I was shoot- shooting in a convention so I took Francis uh for uh, uh Coppola's uh, the conversation mm. film on the conversation and wrote a 30 page shooting list script for my DP for the 4 days um um Based on a convention, I had diagrams mm-hmm. of the of the convention in Seattle, a bumper shoot, and where people were going to be, and shot list everybody, and like thought of scenes of that movie right. where I would think of like Scorsese's Mean Street when I was in I don't know I was in North Carolina shooting mm-hmm. in the club with the rat you know like so there was like or or two thousand and one when I did Parent Mafia in the van like I was thinking of a spaceship so like throughout the whole time of making this film I was like trying to take like influences of people's. Uh, uh, great director's works that I loved mm-hmm. and scenes from there and and kind of mm-hmm. try to like imitate them right. you know maybe not successfully of course not <sighs> successfully well the film has been getting excellent reviews and uh, what was it like to open it up in Montreal at the film festival the Montreal World Film Festival was great it was a fantastic response and it was really uh, really I just uh, it was amazing I mean you know, I got uh, great reviews and stuff, and it was just surreal for me because mm-hmm. it's my first feature film. Right. And so um, it was just great to know that after all this, like, insane amount of work and out-of-pocket money, although, like, for three years,
years I was out of pocket money, and then I can't, the county council gave me uh, funding to cut it, uh, which I was very grateful for because I, I couldn't have finished the movie without it. Right. But Montreal was fantastic. I mean, of course, Montreal is such a great postering town. Of course. And uh, great bands, like, you know, um, great well, bands. Most recently, like the Arcade Fire. Yeah, and, uh, I have a, I have a scene in the Arcade Fire. Oh, really? The, well, the Arcade Fire is not in my movie, but like there's a uh, the Arcade Fire, not, there's an Arcade Fire poster and there's a whole section about the funeral, the album, the funeral. Mm-hmm. And uh, and uh, one of the Minneapolis guys uh, did a poster for that. Mm-hmm. So he talks about, he breaks down how he made that poster and uh, and uh, for Arcade Fire. But Arcade Fire is fantastic. Yeah. That band. Um, and so la- earlier last month, it was in Toronto and then in Winnipeg. And now tonight, uh, it'll be opening at the Van City Theatre. Will you be there? Yes, I'm going to be there. I'm going to be selling posters after the show, movie posters. So mm-hmm. come and uh, I'm available for Q&A after the show. So Excellent. come and ask me anything you want to ask me. Well, and uh, yeah. Well, I, I will definitely be there. And I hope lots of our listeners head on down. But uh, thank you, Eileen, so much for joining me in studio today. Thank you. Thank you. Died Young, Stayed Pretty is playing tonight at the Vancouver City, at the Van City Theatre at 7 p.m. It's also playing tomorrow night. And Eileen will be at both of the screenings and taking Q&A after the shows. So definitely head on down there. Once it leaves Vancouver, Died Young, Stayed Pretty will be traveling to Edmonton and then Regina. And uh, after all that's done, Eileen has also been working with a writer for the past year on a new gothic love story film featuring a taxidermist, a doctor, and an amputee. So everyone should anticipate and keep their eyes open for something very different, but undoubtedly just as good, from the excellent and really kind director Eileen Yahubian. If you want to learn more about Eileen, you can visit her website at www.yahoobian.com. That's Y-A-G-H-O-O-B-I-A-N.com. Or if you want to learn more about Died Young, Stayed Pretty, the film, you can visit the film website at www.diedyoungstayedpretty.com. They also have a Facebook group I was told to mention. All right, and moving on, I sent my wonderful theater critic, Paul Riviere, out to see A Snowflake on the Tongue of Oberon last week, which was on stage on campus by the UBC Players. The play was written by one of the creative writing graduates here at UBC, and this is the review that Paul forwarded me earlier today. The UBC Players Club presented A Snowflake on the Tongue of Oberon last week at the Dorothy Somerset Studio. This delightful one-act play was entirely written and directed by UBC creative writing student Andre Summers. The play takes place hundreds of years after the events of Shakespeare's original A Midsummer's Night Dream, but incorporates many of the same characters. As the playwright explains, Snowflake on the Tongue of Oberon is an existential comedy in rhyme, playing with the themes and motifs of Shakespeare's original A Midsummer's Night Dream. It's about the painful, ridiculous sensation of needing someone and secretly not being able to explain why. In Snowflake, Tatiana, the queen of the fairies, has died leaving Oberon, the king of the fairies, in an existential funk. Shirking his kingly duties, he plunges plunges the forest into an eternal winter. As the result, Oberon's loyal servant, Puck, seeks to rescue the kingdom from the king's dark mood by attempting to bewitch Oberon so that he will fall in love with the new candidate for fairy queen. 
as with all good comedies, things soon go painfully sideways, and the entertainment builds as Glancing of Dewdrops, yes, that is his name, an upstart fairy begins a plot to overthrow Oberon and replace him as the fairy king. What Paul really enjoyed about the play, however, besides listening to the well-written dialogue, all in iambic pentameter, of course, which is Shakespeare's preferred writing style, was how all the entertaining and imaginative characters came to life. The play never took itself too seriously, allowing the characters to laugh at themselves and smile back on the often ridiculous situations they found themselves in. To truly understand what Paul means, you will have to hope, like he does, that the play is remounted at next year's Vancouver Fringe Festival. Overall, the play happily bounced along like the fairies in it, providing all the romp and unexpected turn of events that one would expect from a true Shakespearean comedy. The entire cast was enjoyable to watch, but special mention needs to go to Wes McInnes for his extremely enjoyable performance as Puck and Harrison Cowan as the mischievous Glancing of Dewdrop. Also worthy of mention was the interesting set design by Brendan Al Albano and the colorful costumes designed by Leanne Reimer and Jennifer Alia. For those of you who missed the enjoyable production, check out the UBC Players website at www.ubcplayers.com for more upcoming plays and performances. For the Arts Report, that review was from Paul Riviere. And next on the Arts Report, which is my last thing up for today, I do have a piece from the uh, Vancouver Youth Symphony Orchestra, but I'm having just a little bit of trouble right now loading it up. So in the meantime, I'm going to play you a little bit of um, music, which uh, I featured on a previous show. And uh, hopefully in a couple of seconds, I'll have this uh, piece for you. So... Just for a moment, here's a little bit uh, of um, of music, if I can get the... Yes, here we go. Um, here's a little bit of music from the Arts Report previously. I hope you enjoy it. So sorry about that. That was just a little bit of a uh, technical moment uh, away. But here is my interview with the head of the VYSO and uh, their rehearsal last weekend.
Hello, this is Roger Cole. I'm the uh, music director and artistic director of the Vancouver Youth Symphony Orchestra. And how long have you been uh, working with the kids here? This is my uh, uh, sixth season, and uh, I've been playing principal oboe in the Vancouver Symphony for years and years and years, and it's been a nice addition to my career to be working with these talented young musicians. And uh, you're preparing right now, as we can hear, for the Christmas concert. What's the program set up for this year? Well, we do a Christmas program pretty much every other year, and uh, I feel that you cannot do a Christmas program without playing the Tchaikovsky Nutcracker Suite. So that's the main piece on our half of the program. The first half of the program will be the Intermediate Orchestra with Jin Zhang conducting, and he has some Christmas selections picked out. The Senior Orchestra playing the second half. We will start with the time-honored Leroy Anderson Sleigh Ride, and then we will play uh, Green Sleeves of Vaughn Williams and end with the complete Nutcracker Suite, uh, including Celeste on loan from the Vancouver Symphony. And uh, it's a great, fantastic youth orchestra piece. We're just having a really good time learning it. Is it really difficult for these musicians to play this level of music? Or are they? is this just a piece of cake for them, another day on the... On the orchestra floor, for example. Well, actually, the Nutcracker is a very difficult piece. I have played this piece literally hundreds of times within my with my career with the Vancouver Symphony, and there's bits in that piece that various sections struggle with professionals because it's difficult music. So the answer is it's it's professional level music that we're playing, and we try to play it as professionally as we can and uh, the kids work extremely hard and uh, I think the result is going to be excellent. Who, who are the kids who are here playing for the Vancouver Youth Symphony Orchestra? Well our senior orchestra the minimum age is 14 and the maximum age is 22 so it's mostly high school age serious musicians it's uh, you only can get into the orchestra by audition Every spring we hold auditions, they're very competitive, and uh, we have four orchestras. We have a debut orchestra of strings for ages 8 to 10, and we have a junior orchestra of strings for ages 10 to 12, and then we have an intermediate full orchestra with minimum age 12, and the senior minimum age 14, and they're all, uh, you gain acceptance through audition. So you have to be a serious music student, and you have to practice. I imagine with you playing with the Vancouver Symphony Orchestra, you must have been playing for a number of years, and you've probably played and heard the Nutcracker Suite God knows how many times. But do you think that people ever get tired of this sort of Christmas music, specifically the Nutcracker? I don't think they do, really. I mean, it's the the Nutcracker signifies Christmas to an awful lot of people, and... uh, it's it's quality it's you know the, it's it's a masterwork and uh you know as a player i must admit maybe by about the 200th time i'd played it it was getting a little bit old but but conducting it's an awful lot of fun and uh, the great thing about the youth orchestra playing these masterworks is that by and large they're all playing these pieces for the first time and there's there's no other experience like encountering a great piece of music for the first time. It's just so special. Fantastic. And have you got, for you specifically, have you got any Christmas plans or holiday plans this year that you're looking forward to? Oh, I'm looking forward to having a nice trip to Mexico with my family uh, after the VSO traditional Christmas concerts are finished.
And when would that be? That will be the last week of December. Great. Well, thank you so much for talking to me. Will you um, just let me know specifically exactly when the concert date is and where people can head out so that they can catch it? Yes, I hope all your listeners will come to West Vancouver, the K. Meek uh, Performing Arts Centre, and the concert is December 14th, Sunday at 7.30 p.m. Great. Thank you so much. Can you not listen to that music and think of Christmas? I know I certainly can't. And because I am playing the uh, the Nutcracker Suite for you, I feel it's important that I update you on Ballet BC's Nutcracker ticket sales. Uh, I'll remind those of you who may not have tuned in a couple weeks ago, Ballet BC officially was going to close production, cancelled all their dancers and their company contracts because they didn't feel they had the money to continue the season. But then they announced that if they were able to successfully sell out this Christmas's um, performance of the Nutcracker Ballet, which will be put on by the the Moscow uh, Dance Theatre, they would be able to finish the 2008-2009 Ballet BC season. As of today, I received a press release that says that the BC Nutcracker is almost 70% sold out. 67% of the estimated 12,000 tickets for the December performances of the Nutcracker have been sold. That means that there's almost 30% of the seats still remaining. And that's only that means o- there's only 30% of the, nu- the number of seats left to save Ballet BC, arguably one of Canada's greatest dance companies. So please get out there if you have any interest in the ballet, if you have any interest in arts in BC, please get out there and buy some tickets. You can buy tickets to donate to various children's organizations o- across the Lower Mainland region. And if you simply want to support the ballet, you can contact them at www.balletbc.com. And that will bring this week's episode of The Arts Report to an end. I'm Tracy Fuller, and if you want to get in touch with me or if you want to comment on anything you've heard here on The Arts Report, please don't hesitate to give me a shout. You can reach me at arts at citr.ca. I'll be back again on Friday to give you a weekend arts update, and then I'll be back again right here on CITR 101.9 FM next Wednesday to bring you more of all that's artsy and happening in the Lower Mainland region. My name is Tracy Fuller. This is The Arts Report. Thank you so much for listening. years ago and now things have moved on. You see the pictures 
in the uh, in the press relating to apparently honest with integrity journalism talking about crime and of course the color of crime is often seen as black and the terms that are used which immediately take you to particular groups of individuals who happen to be black That's David Devine, and this is the third season of Canadian Voices, a nationally syndicated radio series and podcast featuring lectures by thought-provoking Canadians. The program is offered free of charge to campus and community radio stations across Canada and is available online at canadianvoices.org. The series is produced by Kootenai Co-op Radio in Nelson, British Columbia. I'm Zoe Creighton. This edition of Canadian Voices features David Devine, the James R. Johnson Chair of Black Canadian Studies at Dalhousie University. He speaks on racial diversity, North America's strength or weakness. The James R. Johnston Chair in Black Canadian Studies is a national senior academic post covering all of Canada, based at Dalhousie University in Halifax, in recognition of the unique historical presence of black people in the area.